You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Galen Rice, who is using Django and Python to create an inventory management system for an e-commerce firm. Galen, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the app that we're going to go over today? Sure. Uh, well, I'm Galen. I live in New Jersey in the United States. Um, the application is for, as you said, an e-commerce website. I developed it uh, myself about uh, six or seven years ago. Um, previous to that, the company was managing inventory that they would uh, bring in from different, different vendors from around the country, and they would ship them into the Amazon Fulfillment Network. Um, they were managing inventory mainly through Excel spreadsheets and Google Sheets shared across computers. So I was working in the warehouse at the time, and I said, I got this. I'm going to make something new for you. So that's pretty much what I did. Interesting. Yeah, I love to hear those stories. There's been a couple so far where it's like things started with a, a weird, crazy Excel sheet, and then it transformed into a custom app. So when you were working in the warehouse, were you just also doing coding work for them on the side, or you just kind of figured, hey, maybe I can do this, so let me ask? Well, I didn't really do too much on the side at the time. I mean, I went to uh, I went to NGIT for my education, but after after I uh, did that for a while, I kind of disconnected from doing any kind of computing, and I just did manual labor because I was kind of trying to find myself. And it was it was there um, where I saw a need for it, and that's pretty much the only reason why I got back into coding. Nice. So you were developing this full time then for those six or seven years? Yep. I was uh, I worked I worked full time with it for about four or five years. Um, I left the company and then came back as a as a contract position. I've been supporting it on a on a smaller basis now, but, uh, but yeah, went completely full time from the beginning and started from scratch. Very cool. So if you can remember back then, do you know how long it took roughly before it went from you know people using the Excel sheet to being able to use your app? Yep, we transitioned from me being hired in that position to launching the site in about four months. Nice. So since this is an internal app, like we're not going to be able to link to that. Can you give us like a visual like TLDR and like how this app works? Like what are some high level components of it? Sure. Um, at the highest level, the, the well, it kind of mirrors the whole warehouse process. So there's a lot of things that got added in piece in like a lot of different uh, a lot of different time when things got added in over time. So the first part that got, that got brought on was the basic warehouse process of just like finding items within a purchase order, um, determining if they're the right one, figuring, telling the system what quantity they had, and then putting it into some kind of a shipment. Uh, from there, in the beginning, they took that into a manual process through Amazon Seller Central. But after that, we developed a, uh, a connector into Amazon MWS. Um, I say developed in that I found one on GitHub. And I, since then I've become a maintainer on that project, but that's separate. Um, so we connect through MWS to uh, take the inventory that they receive, um, throw it into Amazon FBA shipments. Uh, if the audience FBA is fulfillment by Amazon, if any, if you order anything that's prime shipping, that's pretty much what it goes through is FBA. They would receive all these different kinds of products. They would receive information from Amazon about what kind of prep it needed. Um, then we would send it into FBA shipments and then ship it out the door from there. So at the, at the end of it, the whole, the whole system kind of took over the receiving process at the door for UPS and freight shipments. It took over the whole internal process for 
um, what items are on the POs, um, reconciling errors, putting them onto shipments, actually printing shipping labels. And after that, it gets onto a truck and it kind of lets it go. Wow. Okay. So I guess like trying to visualize this from the end user's point of view, like the UI of this app, would this just be like touch screens and like barcode scanners, like throughout the warehouse? Like how do people interact with it? Uh, initially it was mainly just a standard computer setups with keyboard and mouse. There were barcode scanners and I tried to leverage barcode scanning as much as possible. But every time I try to leverage some interface that involves barcode scanning, I have to also develop the barcode to go with it. And a lot of times that involves, um, there's actually a package in there called Report Lab in Python that uh, can generate PDFs. So I had to spend a lot of time in there to put out the right kind of format that people would use. They would stick onto boxes, they would scan it with their scanners to make sure the interface would be able to read it properly. So whole lot of time put on that, but there are a couple stations in there that use touch screens. Most of them just use keyboard mouse because they wanted to go a little cheaper with it, but kind of a mix. Okay. So on the application side of things, like what motivated you to use Django in the end? Uh, honestly, it was a friend of mine that mentioned it at one point and I said, well, what the heck, I'll check it out. Um, before I started making this site, I really didn't know Python that well. So I kind of learned Django before I learned Python is the interesting part. Um, so I just kind of started with Django with the tutorial, and I threw the site together because I had previous experience doing some database design um, and a little bit of PHP programming, even though I don't touch it anymore for somewhat obvious reasons. Um, but yeah, put that all together in, in a simple Django app and just kind of built on it over time into this monolith Chimera thing going on. Nice. Well, I would say things were quite successful, right? You were able to replace that Excel sheet in four months without really knowing much about Python. Right. Very cool. So this application itself, do you know like maybe some libraries that you've used that really helped you figure out how to create this application? Like what saved you a lot of time? Um, a couple things. Let's see. Definitely Report Lab, as I said, for making PDFs. Because if I, if I wasn't able to uh, develop labels and stuff that way, I, probably, I would have had to keep messing with uh, making some Django templates that would make some custom format that I would try to print off for the browser, and that just wasn't going to work over time. Um, there's not too many custom packages in the system, or at least like specialized packages. The MWS connector is definitely one thing I needed to be able to talk to the Amazon MWS uh, endpoints. Um, there's a couple little like autocomplete libraries for some JavaScript stuff um, that connected through Django. It's actually, um, oh, never mind. But uh, yeah, a lot of it is kind of just like bare bones. Like I've got, we need an application. I'm going to write something and just throw it in. So this application, you know, it was in development six, seven years ago. Is this app using Python 2 or Python 3? Python 3. I started with that, yeah. Nice. Very good to know that you started from day one, because it feels like it's been going on forever now, this battle between 2 and 3. Now, finally, it's coming to a close, but a couple of years back, yeah, it was always kind of like a crapshoot on which one to pick. Yeah, I've had a, a couple instances of packages that were written in Python 2 that I've actually had to uh, customize to bring up to Python 3. Um, I think the MWS connector was one of them. It had a couple things that were designed just for Python 2, and it didn't have Python 3 connectivity, so I just kind of took it into the project and customized it and made it work. Right. What about on the Django side? Do you know what version you're using there? Unfortunately, it still runs in Django 1.8, and that is because that's the one. I started 1.7, did a transition to 1.8, and after then I didn't really have the time and budget to be able to upgrade that into other long-term long versions. So yeah, I know these days I'm, I'm working on stuff on the side that uses like Django 3, but that side I just do not have the time. And a few of the packages that are that it's using 
um, they don't really transition easily into a higher version. So it's not the the company that it doesn't have that many technically minded individuals working there. So to be able to go to them and say, I need the time to be able to refactor this and bring this up to speed. They just, we know, no, we need a new feature in the next week. So we can't do that. It's like, okay, fine. Right. Yeah. That seems to be a common trend with not every company, but a lot of companies are like that. It's like, you can never really just get the time to do things that you really should be doing. And then you up and end up in situations where like, I've never really gotten embarrassed for it, but it's like when you're transforming or, you know, uh, transferring like a project you're doing to someone else. And it's like, now you kind of need to explain your decisions on, you know, why the app is still using Django, you know, 1.8, like five years later. But this application, did you have time to write tests for it too or no? A few, uh, not that many, unfortunately. I didn't go with a test-driven design until sometime in the middle. And I got some test coverage and then kind of fell back onto just making development, doing regular development and standard stuff. Unfortunately, the uh, the migration system got kind of broken by a few bad choices here and there. Um, so I wasn't able to run the Django internal test because it can't actually migrate its own database into a uh, an, into a fresh install. I, I, I spent some time recently fixing that, uh, about a week's worth. But uh, yeah, back in the day, that was not something that was a focus, unfortunately. Yeah, that seems like not a fun problem to have. It's like, oops, can't migrate the database or run tests. <laughs> yeah. Now, when you do go and deploy new stuff or, you know, just build like a new feature, like what is your process then to test things before you would think about deploying it? Honestly, a lot of it is taking an internal copy of the production database, um, running with it on my own system and seeing if it works. <laughs> kind of just have to go through the whole process. I have the, uh, the, the fortune and misfortune of having a lot of um, built-in knowledge of myself of how their process works out in the warehouse and how people are doing that process. So they come to me with a feature of something that has to be done. So I kind of roll with it knowing like going back to users and saying like, what do you need? And give me some feedback on this, but also knowing to myself kind of what they're going to need. So while I, it, it does help me in the process of being able to develop a feature more to what they need without needing too many specifications and needing too much feedback loop. Um, it does mean that sometimes I just have to roll with it myself and then I deploy it and then someone's going to tell me what's wrong later, unfortunately. Right. Eh, it happens, but it seems to work. So, hey, it's working. Now, going back to this app here, is this built as like one monolithic app or do you have it broken up into a couple microservices or is it somewhere in between using like Django apps throughout the monolith? The whole thing is a monolith. Uh, is broken up into about 20 different Django apps internally. There's the main one that has uh, the, uh, some of the basic objects like uh, purchase order items, order items, order item market quantity, all the stuff like that that's in one of them. There's other apps that do connections to the MWS endpoints for the products API. Um, the stuff that does some bank reconciliation. There's other kinds of uh, uh, separate apps that kind of separate concerns, but they still cross wires um, because it all has to kind of connect to each other. And most of it has to relate back to that main application for purchase orders and for items. So there is connection across lines for that one, kind of as a God app. Those things, as much as possible, I tried to make sure the, the other applications could be kind of plug in but some cases that just wasn't possible. Right. Yeah. Do you find yourself though, kind of just treating those apps then as just sort of for like the code organization point of view? Like, you know, that if you want to work on X feature, you just jump into X app then not so not worrying about like, Oh, well maybe later on, this will be an actual dedicated microservice. Right. As yeah, I just kind of separated them into those different applications so that the, you know, wouldn't, the code wouldn't get too big across some stuff, even though some, some of the files still are fairly large in a couple of the applications, but they are still separated out. Right. So how many lines of code does this app have, by the way, like overall? 
I'd say between 10 and 20,000 lines of code mixed between uh, Python, HTML, JavaScript, CSS. Um, kind of a, a kind of a even split between Python and HTML because of uh, how many templates there are. Right. Speaking of that, are you using uh, Django templates or is this like an API backend with like some JavaScript heavy front end? Nope, oh, Django templates almost all the way. A couple of customizations I did. I put in, put in some uh, some markdown files for some like help documentation just so I could have an easier time writing. And then I put in a connector to put the markdown files through the Django template system so that I could do that. Nice. So when it comes to the UI of the app, then uh, the warehouse workers and anyone else, is it mainly just like tabular data that's like paginated with searching and filtering and that type of stuff? Most of it is customized. Um, uh, there is some tabular data, mostly for uh, purchase order item selecting, um, but a lot of it is some custom, uh, some custom UIs that are made for like a, a, a piece by piece, step by step workflow. So they'll go into, they'll find the purchase order they want, and they usually find it by scanning the tracking order on some box and say, this is what the purchase order is linked to. So we'll open it up and we'll say, this is the UPC for the item. So we find it. Um, from there, it'll go kind of like. Kind of like an you know an expert system that'll be like is it this uh, it does the item have this kind of length or whatever like say yes or no move on from there to say it doesn't need this kind of prep yes or no and move on from there to say how many uh, units are inside of it and it'll kind of query to MWS and say what prep does it need it'll put that it'll put that up front and then at the end of the process they'll get to a screen that prints out this work order for them and they'll you know print this out of their system stick it on the item and send it down a belt to some other station very cool. Yeah, whenever when you were talking about that, it reminds me like I've never worked at Home Depot before. But sometimes you know you're waiting online and you look at the screen of what the clerk is doing. You can see, see some see some buttons there where it's like you know does the item look like this? Like if they have trouble scanning it for some reason, uh, it just reminds me of like you know a super custom workflow to do you know whatever they're trying to solve basically at the warehouse level. Yeah, for us there was a lot of focus there on you know this is. Like not something used by individuals that could be like myself, like with a very um, technical minded like, um, approach to things. I mean, like, okay, I'd be able to find, I, like I would know exactly how to find these items based on UPC, or I might know what the item code is, or I can do all kinds of things to figure out what it is. But sometimes there has to be a lot of uh, help put in the system to assist whoever's using that system, whoever's using that application to find something, especially if like, you know, there's folks that don't really use a computer that much besides going to work. There's folks that don't have good eyesight, so they have to zoom in very far. You know, all different kinds of concerns for this interface has to go on the system. Yeah, for sure. Now, are you using the Django admin by any chance, at least for like maybe for you to access that as like the site creator, not so much uh, the end users? Some end users are using it. So we are uh, the, the admin is put in place, um, and there is some there are some customizations on top of it. Because the uh, the staff that works in the office side of the business, they need access to make certain kinds of changes to purchase orders. And I could have made separate interfaces to be able to control that from what I say the front end of it, which is like the uh, the standard process. I found it a little bit easier to make just an admin interface that put out its own tabular information and then have them uh, enter information of there to do whatever changes they had to. Most of what they had to do on a day-to-day -day basis, they would use some kind of a, a file importer to just dump data into the system and then some exports to take it out. But if they had to make any kind of changes in the middle of that process, they would go into the admin to make those changes. Okay. And for those uh, imports and exports, would that be like CSV data or something else? Mostly CSV. Um, I was able to take in... I, I, at first, I was not very savvy on taking in uh, Excel or any other kind, of data, other kind of data types. So I kind of forced users to go in through uh, CSV. I made them... 
go through a process to convert the data. After that, we kind of changed it around so they could put in Excel files. They could take out some flat files. Um, there were some screens that could print to print to the uh, to the standard UI some statistical data that would be in tabular format, and they could export that to CSV and to Excel. Nice. And then for when it comes to things like searching, did you do any type of like full text search or anything like that or no? Yes, um, did full text search because a post of a, a Postgres uh, backend for database. Um, in Django 1.8 and 1.7 before it, there wasn't the um, full text search available in Django yet. So I had to do some customizations on there to get it to work. Um, actually, this is one thing I was fairly proud of. I got very good at using the migration system in Django. So I wrote a custom migration that took raw SQL to create a stored procedure that would do on insert or update, create the TS vector inside of the uh, items database. And that was being used to do the full text search. So it wasn't generating the TS vector on the fly. It was doing um, just searching for that existing uh, column. Very cool. And then I guess part of that uh, you know, manual migration you made, did you also create like a database trigger then to make sure it gets updated? Uh, trigger function, insert or update. Um, so any changes happening to those items, it would just check for that. So that migration was, you know, just one giant uh, string that contained the whole store procedure, tested it several times, make sure this thing was going in the right way. And then two steps in the migration, just saying, create the store procedure and then take every single item and just force update them so that it would trigger itself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of using Postgres, like just getting full text search like that with the stored procedure, a couple triggers and you know, your queries, of course, but it's like, that's all you really need to get a pretty damn good full text search. Yep. Now, maybe we can transition now into like the rest of your tech stack, right? It's like, you don't need to use something like Elasticsearch because you have Postgres doing full text search. But do you want to talk about like, are you using Celery and Redis? Like, what about Docker? Anything like that? None of those, actually. Um, it's a straight, just running Nginx Gunicorn on a bare metal server that's owned by the company. Um, I'd did not have, like I said, I, I began doing stuff with Python and Django when I started this application. So my knowledge of those things didn't really come in until after I left and I started doing stuff on my own. So the system runs on a bare metal server. It just gets pulled down from GitHub and deployed that way. Um, running Nginx and Gunicorn or Gunicorn. I usually call it Gunicorn, but I heard Gunicorn recently, so that's fine. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, so yeah, it just runs... That simple tech stack just restarts those services and then it's up and running. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely go into that in a little bit more detail later on. But for now, I'm still curious about, you know, you're not using Celery and Redis, but you mentioned that you're doing a lot of, well, maybe not a lot, but you're doing some type of like bulk imports of like CSVs and stuff like that. Did you just do those like straight up in the request response cycle then? Uh, no. Unfortunately, the in the request response cycle, those imports would take too long to process and they would time out the fr in the front end. So... A lot of times this is probably not the best way to do things, but I would just dump them into a separate database table and have some background cron tab that would just go over them, like cron job that would go over them and process line by line, um, a couple thousand lines at a time, and then stop the process and come back later and do it again. Okay, so you handled like what Celery could have done for you at the database level with like a system level cron job. Yeah, like like I said, I'm not gonna like defend too much about it, but like I didn't know too much about these different systems like Celery and stuff. I would, if I could go back in time and knew what I knew now, I would have put all that stuff in place. But I didn't have any knowledge of that. I didn't have the time for it, so I just kind of did what I could. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm not trying to attack your ways here. I know. I mean, I love hearing about how others. Sometimes it just comes down to like you have to get the job done. Like the client just, you know, they're not willing to pay more to do it like correctly, and you don't have the time. So it's like you just do what you know how to do. 
So you mentioned this is running on a bare metal. That's awesome to hear. Uh, were you able to control like what type of hardware the server had, or did they already have that? Yes, we actually built that ourselves. Um, we picked up some uh, Xenon processors off of eBay. Um, that you know they're used. They still work perfectly fine. They're a little bit cheaper than the new ones. That's all fine. A couple of SSDs and some hard drives. Uh, good motherboard that we got off somewhere. I think it probably cost us about twelve hundred bucks old hold, and then stuck that in a rack and off we go. Right. 1200 is not that bad. Do you know, like, you know, CPU clock speed, like amount of memory, things like that? Uh, not off the top of my head. That was a while ago. Or how many cores maybe, at least on the CPU? Those two CPUs definitely had maybe four or six cores each. Um, yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> so was that a fun side project then, assembling all those parts into like a working server? Yeah, if by side project you mean like two months worth of ordering and then wrangling for the time to actually build the thing while I'm doing other projects. Yeah. Great fun. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've never had to build my own bare metal server from scratch, but I do build my own desktop workstations. It's always fun, but I guess that's a little bit different. So on this bare metal server, uh, which distro of Linux did you choose? Unless you happen to be running Windows, but I don't think so. I believe at the time it was CentOS 7. Uh, that was when we chose. Uh, I had picked up some, I don't use DigitalOcean myself, but I picked up some tutorials from DigitalOcean about how to do uh, CentOS deployments for uh, Nginx Gunicorn. Like just, I just named the whole stack of what I wanted to put in, and there was a tutorial for it, which was great. So I just said CentOS, Nginx Gunicorn, Django, and then followed that, put it in place, made a few customizations, and off we go. Right. So when it came to choosing uh, CentOS, did you have like, you know, an internal battle of like, should I use this or Ubuntu, or did you just know that from previous work and that was it? I did a bit of research um, about what kind of service stacks would be best for that situation. I kind of gravitated towards CentOS, and I don't remember the exact reason why at the time, but I felt like it was a, a more like stable system to use. I mean, these days I could have easily used Ubuntu Server just fine, or probably not RHEL because I wouldn't have the money for that, but, uh, you know, same thing. Mm -hmm. So as for the server itself, you know, you have your OS on there. Did you use any tools to configure and install everything or no? Or did you just do it by hand from following those tutorials? Pretty much did by hand. Um, took some notes about everything. Made some backup scripts. Uh, made some deployment scripts. Um, when I handed everything off, when I left the company, obviously I had to, I, they hired off a different uh, team of people from outside the company to try to manage it. But I still handed off as much as I could in terms of scripting and instructions for how to get this thing back up and running. How large were those docs then when it came down to it? Like describing how to set everything up? Oh. How large or how long it took me to write them? Probably about two weeks worth. Uh, I would say the scripting themselves, there's not that many scripts to have to go through. Uh, the documentation, probably a couple of pages worth of like, run these instructions, get things in, these things into place. This is where things are. Um, that's that. Right. So I guess now, yeah, we can talk maybe a little bit more about your deploy process. You mentioned having this deploy script. Do you want to just walk us through what it's like to go from developing some feature on your dev box and actually getting this thing up and running into production. Yep. Uh, the development process, I try to follow a, a GitHub flow, branching strategy for Git. So I just kind of develop feature by feature, uh, merge them and squash them back in a master branch. And once they're on master branch on the remote, uh, the deployment script can take over from there. It just pulls down whatever's on master, uh, the latest, uh, resets everything, um, sets the file permissions, make sure that the logs are set up right, the media folder is there if it has to be and then just restart services and goes. Uh, not too much more complicated than that, actually. Right, so that's a script that's running straight up on your server then? Yep. Okay, and then do you also like, you know, if you were to break this down in a little bit more in detail, is it like, are you running like pip install and then doing a collect static and a db migrate when it's working? Yeah, those are part of the script. A, uh, 
a migrate, not a pip install because we usually have those requirements set up already. If any kind of requirements are changed, uh, we do those changes manually. I think that's kind of a, a little more of a hectic situation than just kind of throwing it in and see if it works. Usually if we have those kinds of requirement changes, it's something that has to get like taken off and then something else put in and then make sure it runs properly and so on and so forth. So the, the deployment script doesn't do any kind of pip installs. We do those manually if we have to. Um, so that, so that, that'll just do, like I said, migrate, collect static, and then change file permissions. Because I kept finding that file permissions were always wrong. So I just go into them and recursively just fire off like this, the right permissions, the right ownership, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned that you're not using Docker. Do you use something like a, you know, a virtual environment to, to set up your Python environment? Yes, a virtual environment. Um, I just have to, um, whenever the cron jobs run and whenever the, the, uh, the develop deployment script runs, I just have to point manually to where that uh, environment is. Um, I don't really bother to activate it to be able to do the, uh, the work there because I, I think that's kind of a little too much for those scripts to be running on. So I just kind of I just point to where that Python executable is, start from there, and then run the other scripting. Right. And then what about for like managing uh, the processes of Unicorn and, well, I guess Nginx is already handled for you, but are you using something like systemd or uh, I'm not really sure what's on CentOS 7. Yeah, uh, I think it's, yeah, it is systemd. Uh, I think systemcuddle is uh, what I use for restarting those. Right. So you had like a unit file or a service file. Right. Now, what about when it comes to deploying something like secrets, like secret keys? Were those inversion control or in environment variables somewhere else? Uh, a couple used to be inversion control, but I discovered those and then rolled them out. Usually, they, we would go in there manually, type them into an environment file, and that would get pulled into the system. A couple, like once or twice, there would be somebody deploying into some other test system. I, since I left, they put in a test server. And they deploy it into there, but they find like if they try to they start the service by itself just by deploying it, then it just crashes because it can't find that environment file. So they'd have to go in, make that file, copy in the secrets, and then off they go. Right. And now when it comes to like deployment schedules, did you like deploy on a specific day of the week or multiple times per day? Like how how is that set up? Usually it would be uh, it would kind of be ad hoc, not a set time, not a set schedule, but. If there was going to be a deployment, unless it was an emergency and there had to be something going out immediately, it was usually done during the lunch break in the warehouse because this was, you know, a very like a, a, a very constrained environment for who's using the system. So there's a definite time of day during the workday when we know nobody's going to be on it that much. So I could say, okay, this 10 minute period, nobody can use it. Get off, go to lunch, get out. Um, a couple times I have had to stay afterwards to do some long migrations like i'd find i do a data migration that in testing runs for about two hours because it's not optimized properly it's like okay fine i'm just gonna sit here after work and i'm gonna make it work right it's kind of nice though right to have those constraints where you just know that you can pretty much safely take the app off for you know 10 20 minutes uh, much different than being on the internet where it's like global 24 7. right i kind of designed some of the systems so that i i expected maybe one day they would expand into some other location where they may have to have more uptime but uh, until that became a problem, I didn't really have to worry about it, unfortunately. Right. Now, as for that Nginx setup, did you also configure like self-signed SSL certs or no? No, there are no SSL certs in that one. Um, I, I, I could have, like thinking back on it, but not, I don't think it was that easy to do it back then. Um, nowadays, I've figured out how to do stuff with Let's Encrypt, and it's like, oh, great, I should have done this back, way back when. But uh, no, everything runs, unfortunately, on unsecure internal. Okay. And then for Nginx also, do you have that then just serving all of your static files? Yep. That's, that does the static file and the reverse proxy to Unicorn. Right. Yeah, Nginx is like one of my favorite tech tools, honestly. It, it just seems like if something is going to break, it's probably not going to be Nginx. 
Now, with this uh, app over here, have you did any planning for like disasters or unexpected events? Like, did you back up the database on a regular basis or any user uploaded files like those CSVs? The user uploaded files, not too often. Um, those we kind of, I, I kind of would just consume those, throw them in the database and then discard the file because it wasn't really necessary to keep that anymore. For the database itself, we did set up an S3 backup on AWS. Uh, we haven't really had to use it. Uh, there was one case where before we did all that, uh, the server died one day in the middle of work, and I had to hook up my own laptop to run as a backup server while I ran to Micro Center to get myself a new hard drive. So that was a fun time. But uh, learn my lesson from that one. Definitely have contingencies. Hmm. Yeah, I guess you have a whole new set of problems when you're responsible for the hardware. Yep. Uh, must be fun in some ways, but also a little bit stressful, like what you had to do, like running to Micro Center. Yeah, very hair-raising, I'll tell you. Yeah. Now, what about things like getting emailed or notified of like stack traces? Like, what do you do for, you know, logging and metrics and things like that? Those, uh, we threw in the SMTP server for Google, gave it a Gmail account that it owns, that the server owns, so that it just emails out from the server and goes through the Django admin setting um, to send any of those stack traces back to us. I did have to do some slight customization on the, uh, the management scripting. So, because sometimes when you run cron jobs that do Django commands through manage.py, it won't necessarily email you those errors that happened during that point. So I had to kind of wrap that around and do it myself. Yeah, we do, it does just email at stack trace to uh, anybody on the admin list, which is only two people right now. So do you recall in the past getting emailed a couple times for a couple stack traces or not? Oh yeah, I recall times when a certain kind of error would happen, which... There's sometimes errors that happen that I've caused, and I'll get ten, a thousand emails at once that everyone's hitting the same error at the same time. It's only worse when I get that kind of thing because it's an error with Amazon MWS being down, and everyone's hitting that error at the same time, and I'm getting 500 emails at once. So, yeah, that was fun. Right. Did you ever try to like write something to sort of rate limit those emails going out? Because I don't know if maybe Gmail changed this, but there, I think there's some sort of limit on the amount of emails you can send per day through a, through, the, uh, through a personal account, right? If there's a limit, I don't think I've ever hit it. Um, at maximum, we probably sent out maybe a thousand of those emails a day at the absolute maximum. That's when like something was something bad was happening and the system was still running with that one bad thing happening for about five minutes straight uh, with 30 users trying to hit that same thing. So uh, aside from that, there was a couple, there's just a couple status emails that go out for certain kinds of jobs. Um, there's only maybe like 20, 30 of those a day. Um, so if it, I haven't really had to hit those rate limits because I haven't had that large of a user base. Right. So would you classify this warehouse operation as like somewhat mission critical? Like if your app is throwing, you know, hundreds of errors per day, is, is taking the entire app down until you fix it just not an option because you need to fulfill orders? Usually not an option. If the application is down, I'll put it this way, if the application is down or if MWS is down, that they can't make their shipments through that, then about 50 people stand around doing nothing while getting paid. So usually we keep the application running and they, like try to make the smallest changes possible and see if something breaks and then fix it. Um, if it's a large feature, it's usually something that is separate from the rest of the workflow um, or we've tested it out extensively beforehand. So we usually try to make sure that our, uh, our, change, uh, method, our change methodology is, is as tight as possible. Right, yeah, that is a very good idea. Yeah, I think there's like some book around that topic, like the Mikado method. You ever hear about that one? No, I haven't. It's like the art of like just making the smallest possible change, basically. But uh, speaking about that, maybe then like what are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this app? Uh, like that, make some small, the smallest changes possible. Um, definitely, even if you 
work in a professional setting like that, working on your own in the application, plan for having a team, I would say. Over time, I, I, if you have to later bring a team into the system to work on it with you to develop it further, then getting them up to speed while not having the tooling in place to be able to work cross-team is going to really bite you in the butt. And aside from that, just kind of work slowly. Um, use the migration system. It is a very powerful tool for a lot of different things. And uh, that's that. Okay. So on the flip side of that, do you recall making like any mistakes throughout the process that you kind of fixed along the way? Several. Um, you know, the, the Django documentation will warn you about the use of signals and where they're supposed to be imported. I imported them the wrong way, and that was part of the thing that broke the migration system way back when. Uh, that's something I had to fix in a kind of a, large, a longer process that uh, it took some time to put that in place. But finally, I was able to like, take, those, take those pieces of code away and then fix that process, make it look the right way, and then I could actually migrate the whole system from scratch. Yeah. So especially one of those mistakes is just incrementally migrating the system over time without ever really testing the full migration from a bare system, because that was what really broke me. Do you want to maybe let's just go into more detail about like, so other people don't end up in that same situation of like breaking the migration system. Do you just want to like tear down like exactly how you got into that state? Yeah. Um, so I put in stuff that would migrate in one, migrate in one direction. And I kind of didn't think in my head like this, this one migration that I'm doing for putting this data in place or relying upon this model structure in this later migration is not going to be available if I were to restart the system from scratch with just the, the initial migrations. So if I were to take this whole thing, run it through either the testing, like Django's test system to create a test database, run migrations from scratch, or if I just started up a new deployment, then I would find, oh, the migrations can't run at all because of this one later migration that depends on something else that doesn't exist anymore. So that broke everything. So yeah, just, I would say just constantly running through, like running with the Django test tools to try out the migrations and make sure that they work from start to finish so that if you, if anything does go wrong and you have to use it that way, that you can. Right. Yeah. That's definitely a good idea. So Galen, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Right, thank you. It's great. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Sure. On GitHub, I am G Rice Turble. That's T-U-R-R-B-L-E. Um, currently working on as a maintainer for the Python Amazon MWS project. That's something I'd like people to get into. Um, we're on Slack there as well. You can find a link to it there. Um, yeah. Aside from that, that's that's where I am. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.